Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. It's my great pleasure to introduce our honoree today, General John W. Nicholson, Jr. His friends call him Mick, partly to distinguish him from his father, General John W. Nicholson, only we call him General Jack, who happens to be a longtime member of the Board of Trustees of IWP. But I assure you there was no nepotism in our decision to honor Mick. We invited him before General Jack ever knew we were going to do so. Uh, General Nicholson is a member of an, of an extraordinary American family whose uncle, uh, in addition to being a veteran, has served as Secretary of Veterans Affairs and a U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See. Uh, what, where do such people come from? They come from great families that were, you know, where the, the people were raised well. Our honoree has rendered America and the free world truly extraordinary service. His biography is filled with critically important positions that he's occupied during 37 years of service in the U.S. Army. Among those positions was his service as a paratrooper in the U.S. liberation of Grenada in 1983, the first time that a consolidated communist regime was ever freed from that form of tyranny. He served altogether 76 months in combat. 76 months which included six tours in Afghanistan. This is more combat service than any other four-star general in modern times, and maybe in the history of the whole country. There may have been a couple of ones earlier, way a long time ago. He's had a full complement of important policy roles. He served as a strategist for Army Chief of Staff General Shinseki during the 9-11 events, he was Deputy Director of Operations for the Joint Staff, Deputy Director of JIDO, which is the Joint Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization. He has served as Commander of the 86, 82nd Airport, Airborne Division, the unit of the Army which has the capability to respond to contingencies anywhere in the world within 18 hours. He was commander of the entire land forces of NATO and was instrumental in the policy of bolstering allied forces on NATO's eastern flank. This was just one of four assignments that he's had with NATO as a general. He completed his service as the longest serving commander of the allied forces in Afghanistan, where he initiated attacks on enemy safe havens in Pakistan but with an eye to the kind of integrated strategic thinking that we prize here at IWP, he recognized the importance of amplifying the voices for peace within that country while simultaneously protecting U.S. security interests. So he initiated the first successful ceasefire, which had a remarkable strategic effect. Namely, it was a way of showing the people the national leaders and the tribal leaders of Afghanistan, the benefits of even a short period of peace, the result of which was to put both social and religious pressure on the Taliban 
to reach a political solution. General Nicholson chose to stay in Afghanistan a year longer than usual. Why? Because he had an acute understanding of Afghan culture, an understanding complemented by his extraordinary wife, Noreen, who's here with us, who has had her own remarkable service in that country. What followed from that insight was his understanding of the perils of personnel turnover and its adverse effects on developing and maintaining relations of trust with the Afghans. His efforts resulted in the significant increase in the ability of the Afghan armed forces to work on their own nation's security, including the double, doubling of their special forces and the tripling of their air force. The final results of the Afghan war will not be known for some time. But thanks in no small part to his efforts, the seeds have been planted for significant changes in that country. Among them, of course, is impending generational change due to the exposure of the younger generation to the outside world and such remarkable progress as the increase in life expectancy from 42, age 42 to age 60. Despite his extraordinary length of combat service, the larger part of his service has been in the joint interagency and multinational arenas, working with the intelligence community, the State Department, the national security staff, law enforcement, foreign aid organizations, our NATO allies, and the 41-nation coalition of the Resolute Support Mission in Afghanistan. He had a particularly, he's, he's had particularly vexing challenges along the way, including managing the policy transitions from two presidencies, from Presidents Bush to Obama, and from Obama to Trump. Each of these required a wholesale review of policy. All this extraordinary interagency and multinational experience brought him a special appreciation for the need for integrated strategic thinking and unity of effort in the whole of government approach. Given the devil, devilishly com complex situation he inherited in his last command, his intellectual perspective, his cross-cultural knowledge, his diplomacy, strategy, courage, and perseverance resulted in progress that few could have expected in what many have described as mission impossible. For this extraordinary service, and for all those virtues I enumerated earlier, which he has embodied, and for representing a model for our students and graduates to emulate, we are proud to bestow upon him the degree of Doctorate of Laws Honoris Causa. General? Well, uh, President Lanchowski, uh, thank you so much for that very generous introduction. And thanks to you, Chair Chairman uh, Owen uh, Smith and Dean, trustees, faculty. Excuse me, I'm having trouble with this tassel. You know, it's just a new, it's a new piece of headgear for me. So <laughs> figured it out here. And, uh, but it is, uh, it, it is such an honor uh, to receive this honorary degree for me and my family. And dad, uh, hello, and my stepmom, Sophie, and my wife, Noreen. Uh, and so we, we are really deeply honored and, and I'm personally humbled to receive this degree from an institution whose founding principles align with so many of the ones which, which frankly I've tried to adhere to in the course of my career. And to the families and friends and graduates of IWP, it's an honor to join you at this important moment, this recognition of this attainment of this goal that you've been working so hard for earning a master's degree or other degree from, 
from the Institute for World Politics. And in our world of national security, this is a very important professional credential, uh, especially for those who are going to go on to serve inside the community. But more importantly, I believe it's a recognition of your intellectual growth. And it's that intellectual growth that I think we really celebrate today. This, this, uh, this type of growth is good as an end in itself, certainly. But for those who are practitioners in the realm of national security and advancing the interests of our nation, it's essential to be able to deal with the complex and unfamiliar challenges that certainly lie ahead for each of you. And so to illustrate what I mean by that, I want to share some elements of my own story and what I've learned about the exercise of statecraft uh, in the course of my time uh, serving our country. But before I do that, though, I, I want to share uh, a little bit about the IWP mission and how it contributes not only to the intellectual growth of its graduates, but clearly to the national security of our nation. And I do that not for, for the graduates primarily, because you're very familiar with it. But for those who, who are joining us today, your family, your friends, your support networks, because uh, I think it is extraordinary. And, and Dr. Lenchowski talked about it in his introduction, but I think it's worth reiterating, and it's certainly important for me uh, to, uh, to recognize it. So in, in the IWT Charter, in Article 1, which lays out the mission, I just want to quote some of the, the points that this school is based upon. Quote, teaching the art of statecraft at IWP involves more than traditional diplomacy and armed force. It includes public diplomacy, such as educational and cultural exchanges, information policy, international broadcasting. broadcasting. It includes strategic influence, intelligence, counterintelligence, various forms of nonviolent conflict, economic and commercial strategy, cyber strategy, law enforcement, protective security, immigration and naturalization policy, and how these instruments are integrated in a national strategy, end quote. And on the philosophical foundation for the use of these instruments of power, IWP's curriculum compares the moral philosophical foundations of Western Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian civilization and its American branch as properly understood with the philosophical origins of other to include tyrannical political systems such as fascism, Nazism, communism, and it also looks at Islamic systems. Now having lived in Islamic countries for eight of the last 12 years and worked closely on a daily basis side by side with Muslim soldiers but also with allies, I would tell you that I wish that I had had this as an element of my education before I entered into these, uh, these challenges that we've dealt with the last several years. On the ethical use of the instruments of power, the IWT Charter says, quote, because IWT teaches how to use the instruments of power, its curriculum will try to ensure that its students will do so ethically, responsibly, and prudently. And as a wartime commander for the last two and a half years, I strived every day to meet this standard. It is not easy. But again, this was not a specific component of my education. So when I opened this IWT charter and I read what this school stands for and what it does, I thought these are exactly the things that our leaders in the national security need to study and understand going forward. 
So I would tell you that uh, the, these, uh, and again, the focus on the real world, uh, because in the real world, these are the challenges that you face. These are the conditions you have to deal with. So let me share a little bit about my own story, because I think it does illustrate the value of this education that we're going to honor here today. So, so essentially, in my 37 years, it was 10 years of service, followed by two years of grad school, followed by another nine or 10 years of service, by, followed by another year of grad school, and then this last 14 years uh, of, of service. So uh, what, what did I, I want to I share with you what I kind of learned at each one of those stages in terms of graduate education, why I think growth is so important. You know, my first 10 years in the Army were during the Cold War. The, uh, and, and many of you here can remember that. As an infantry officer, my mission was to close with and destroy the enemy. I'm sure we got a few infantry officers in the crowd, and you can relate to that language. Uh, but as, as Dr. Lachowski mentioned, I served in the 82nd Airborne Division, the Ranger Regiment, commanding companies and serving in all the various staff positions. And in those units, our job was to maintain a very high level of readiness and to be able to deploy anywhere around the globe within hours. And our, our mantra in the 82nd Airborne was jump, fight, and win. And our mantra in the Ranger Regiment was built around a thing called the Ranger Creed. And to quote from that, I will never leave a fallen comrade. I will never accept defeat. I will fight on to the Ranger objective and accomplish the mission, though I be the lone survivor." End quote. Our enemy was the Soviet Union and its proxies, and they were bent on our destruction. And so this was very clear to each and every one of us, what our mission was and who the enemy was. We knew almost everything about them how they were organized, how they were equipped, their numbers, where they were located, their tactics, their leadership. We trained relentlessly to defeat them, and we were very good at our jobs. And in those days, you could rise from a second lieutenant in the Army to the rank of four-star general based on your mastery of tactics and your tactical expertise at defeating Soviet forces. The Army was over a million people strong, and about 400,000 were located in Europe of, of armed forces altogether. And we could reinforce you know, with 10 divisions in 10 days in order to meet the Soviets uh, in, uh, in Germany if necessary. So this mastery of tactics and logistics, what was uh, permeated the military, the Army in particular, from top to bottom. And this was the Army I grew up in for the first 10 years. And then, as we know, the Berlin Wall came down in November of 1989, and the Soviet Union dissolved in December of 1991. Uh, we fought Desert Storm with the Army that had that traditional approach to warfare and were the experts at defeating the Soviet Union. And this Army was moved to the Middle East and defeated uh, its opponent in 100 hours. A brilliant performance, but it was also one that affected how we approached the future. Now, that is just at the time I went on to, uh, to graduate school, six months after the end of Desert Storm. And so, as I went into that graduate school experience, it was an exceptional experience at Fort Leavenworth and the uh, School for Advanced Military Studies. I I'm sorry I'm keeping him awake there. I know he, he, needs, a, he needs a break. The, uh, uh, it's, it, it, was, uh, it was an exceptional educational experience. And the, and the School for Advanced Military Studies, SAMS, it's called in the Army, was really a, a premier educational experience. So for those of us, you know, emerge from just this, this world I just described 
It was a chance to synthesize what we learned about the tactical art and synthesize what we had, had experienced as junior officers inside the, the business end of the Army. Um, and while we pondered the future, and certainly at that moment, as an educational institution, SAMS uh, had, had been built upon, again, defeating the Soviets, and now we were looking forward to an uncertain future. And so to deal with that, we studied you know, the classic military theorists, Clausewitz, Sun Tzu, Yomini, Dupik, uh, Mahan, Douay, the, the list goes on. Uh, but again, uh, we, were, we were synthesizing our experience. Our monographs were generally on, on tactical topics. I mean, mine was on the need for a middleweight force, and that was considered a good topic. So my point is, graduate education at that point, in terms of intellectual growth, was great at synthesis of what we had experienced. But when I look ahead then, when I left SAMS and went into the decade of the 90s, and then 9-11, did it really prepare us for that? And so, so enter, the, enter that decade. And, and you know, I, I went to Europe as a young officer, and we were dealing with questions like, how small do we make the Army in Europe? We were dealing with complexity and risk in places like Mogadishu, Liberia, Rwanda, and then, of course, Bosnia. And so our Army, uh, w there, were, there were internal debates going on inside the Army about how should we approach these problems. And you may remember, you know, Colin Powell, um, who, who was the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and later Secretary of the State, advocated for overwhelming force, a clearly defined objective and overwhelming force is the, is the only time you employ force. And on the other hand, you had Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who famously said, you know, what's the purpose of having such a magnificent army if you don't use it? And so these debates went on inside of me about what was the way forward. And then near the end of that, of course, 9-11 happened. And no one had anticipated that. And it certainly wasn't anticipated, I think, in our educational experiences. And it was eight, uh, on the day of 9-11, I was working in the Pentagon for General Eric Shinseki, the Chief of Staff of the Army, who was transforming the Army after that introspective period we went through in the 90s. And, uh, Fortunately, on that day, I was moving into my house because the, the nose of the airplane passed within 100 feet of my desk, and many of my colleagues were, were killed. And, and this was a, a, uh, an awakening for us, of course, uh, that, uh, that we were in a new type of conflict that we had not seen before. And so 18 months later, back to grad school, this time to National War College an exceptional educational institution, part of National Defense University, and, and perhaps the closest to what you do, but it doesn't quite do the same thing. And so as I, as I think about my experience at National, here we were uh, two years into this new war, and what was that experience like? Again, an excellent uh, job at synthesizing what we had learned and studying, but as I think about what I ended up doing subsequently, did it address some of these topics, the answer is not quite, not quite as well as the charter of IWP does. And so, uh, again, um, as I think of that educational experience, I mainly think of my professors and the relationships. And one of my professors was Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who I ended up serving with in multiple tours and uh, when he was ambassador to Pakistan and, and Afghanistan, a brilliant diplomat. And so that was one of the principal uh, elements of value from that program. So I mention all this uh, to, to, give, to give you a point of comparison to the educational experience you've just been through. And having just, 
you know, literally stepped off the battlefield about uh, eight months ago, uh, and, and knowing what you're going to encounter, I think the foundation that you've, that you've gained here by experiencing this school and this program with, this, uh, with these founding principles is uh, just what you need. So as I, as I, uh, as I think about that and, and look ahead then at what, what do I take away as lessons I've learned from the last several years uh, uh, serving in Afghanistan and elsewhere, there, there, there's so much I could share, but, but we, 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 uh, we don't have time to do all of that. But there is one thing in particular I really want to focus on. And that is, as you look at all of these elements of statecraft that you have learned about uh, in your programs here, how do you achieve unity of effort amongst those tools and also with those outside the U.S. government, you know, with allies, with other nations, with non-governmental organizations and so forth? Because it's the lesson I've learned in the, in the real world uh, that, uh, that you'll be in using your education. You may be working within one instrument, military, intelligence, state, economic, but, you, but your success quite often depends on people outside of your realm over whom you have no authority, you have no control. So how do you achieve unity of purpose with them in order to achieve the success that we need to deliver for our nation? Well, first I say is if you stay in your comfort zone, you're going to fail. You know, if you're a military person and you stick to your comfort zone of military and, and in the case of you're now operating at the strategic realm but you stick to tactics, you're not going to be delivering what our nation needs you to deliver. Okay, you have got to get out of your comfort zone. Uh, this, um, you got to get comfortable with working with people from other cultures. I mean, not just other nations, but other organizational cultures. Understanding those cultures and then being able to uh, build and establish relationships, authentic relationships, with a degree of trust with people from other organizations and other cultures. So in the case of Afghanistan, I had essentially three chains of command that I worked with. My U.S. chain of command, very clear, very understandable to all of us. A NATO chain of command, a little more opaque because uh, you had the, the nations of NATO, uh, each with their own unique dynamics. And then there was the chain of command that I was advising, the Afghan chain of command, from the president on down to all of their military leaders and working with them. And each of these, each of these chains of command uh, had their own unique characteristics. The 40 coalition partners that we had, each of these had their own unique political cycles that they were going through. And as commander, you needed to understand that. Each of these militaries had their own unique military cultures. And when, uh, in, in the course of my time in Afghanistan, numerous nations had what I would call political evolutions, elections and attempted coup in Turkey, uh, and, and then reconsiderations of policies that were going on in various nations as we went through this, and how do we uh, achieve unity of effort as a new political team comes on board. And likewise in our own nation, as Dr. Lenchowski mentioned, we transitioned in my time as commander from President Obama to President Trump two very different presidents with different styles and different thoughts about, this, about the policy. So managing all of that is what you will have to do. And so what I would suggest is that your, uh, you know, how do you, what, what is a sort of a hip pocket way of how you work through that, if you will? And not to overly simplify it, but what I found was in dealing with these circumstances, there were a few steps that I tried to work through uh, that usually helped me move towards a, a solution. And so the first thing I'd say is, 
You identify the actors that you have to work with. Who are the people that are going to be integral to your success? What's the problem you're trying to solve and who are the people that can help you solve it? Next, go out and establish relationships with those people and own that relationship. This means you've got to invest time and understanding. Uh, you've got to listen and learn about them and about their organization. Three, inevitably you're going to find there's some interest that, where, where you have an intersection. It may not be immediately apparent. Uh, one example I use in Afghanistan were human rights organizations. They were often critical of the use of military force. And, but we did share an interest in the welfare of the Afghan people. So when we sat down with the human rights organization, we said, look, we both want to see a better life for the Afghan people and peace return to this country. Can we agree on that? Yes. Okay, now, how are we going to work together to achieve that goal, which is the next step? Once you identify your common interests, figure out how you're going to work together. This is where you start building your unity of effort. And then equally important, you have to say, where do we know we're going to conflict? Where do we know our interests are going to collide? And how are we going to work our way through that friction? And then you, you, you lay that on the table. And then you've got to work that relationship. And so there's 100 examples I could give you of how we did that in Afghanistan. But this, over time, builds a degree of trust between people, again, from another organization, another culture, another country. And once you have that degree of trust, you can begin to achieve an outcome. And you, and you of course, are uh, representing our nation and the principles that we're based on in your mission, and they're representing their particular culture or organization. But if you can establish that authentic relationship with a degree of trust, you can achieve unity of effort. Relationships are key to making this work. And the importance of having a very solid civilian-military relationships inside our own government is essential. And again, you have to own these relationships. You've got to invest time in these relationships, your personal time and energy. And they need to be real and authentic relationships. Americans, I found, in dealing with other cultures tend to be overly transactional. Okay, that's our culture. We're all type A's. We want it done yesterday. We want to walk in the room. Here's what I want. There's what you want. Let's slap the table. We got a deal. Let's move out. It just doesn't work that way uh, in the rest of the world. It just doesn't work that way. And, and again, back to living in, uh, for, for eight years in Muslim countries. In that, in the, in that uh, religious tradition and those cultural traditions, you, you, they need to know that you respect them, that you respect their culture, you respect their religion, you respect who they are. Uh, and then you, you establish a foundation of respect, of willingly listening and learning from them. And then this will build the kind of relationship that you need that leads to trust and allows you to achieve an outcome. So I, I'd, I'd encourage you, unless you're dealing with a room full of uh, folks from your own institution, transactional approaches typically don't work. So um, what are the qualities required for this, though? And I, and, and I bring this up, I think this is important. You know, when you think of a traditional list of military virtues, there's things like physical courage, moral courage, uh, integrity, and these are absolutely essential. But there are some other qualities that are important to being able to build relationships and achieve this, these efforts that we're, that we're talking about. Humility and patience. These enable you to listen and to learn from others. Leaders must have emotional intelligence and empathy. And this empathy also allows you to hear the other person, understand where they're coming from, and then, and then they feel understood, and now you're able to progress and achieve the outcomes that you need to achieve for the nation. And all of this takes time. And this means you personally 
have to take time to think and to learn and to understand the problem that you're dealing with. And when I mention the challenges, you know, in the 14 years coming out of the National War College and now, dealing with many brand new challenges, things that we did not anticipate when I was in grad school, but we had to work our way through. And applying the intellectual frameworks that you've gained from this tremendous education you've just received is a way to approach those problems and understand those problems. So this takes time. So you have to carve out the time to do this. And so the, the, the final thing I wanted to touch upon was your time management. That's kind of a practical consideration. But everything I just talked about requires an enormous investment of your personal time. And something else. You know, I, I, I go back to uh, uh, when I was a lieutenant in the infantry. Um, as, as a junior officer, I'd say you used your back as much as your brain. Okay, we had a saying about when, when do you need to be a strong ranger and when do you need to be a smart ranger, right? So smart ranger, strong ranger. So uh, now, in the positions you're going to be in, we're, it's your brains that we need more than your backs. Okay, and so having the self-awareness to understand uh, what I need uh, to, uh, to perform in my peak mental performance is really important. And what I found is it requires sleep, it requires fuel, you've got to put food in the engine, and then it requires you to have uh, some degree of personal balance, you know, physical fitness, time with your family, emotional, spiritual balance, these are absolutely essential. So I came up with a little formula, and if you remember nothing else from what I said today, remember this formula. I call it 237. And so in my, uh, in my days in Afghanistan, which, you know, there was 24 hours on the clock, but I certainly could have used more, but I didn't have it, uh, I, I, I built a little a rhythm for myself, is I need seven hours of sleep. So I know if my brain uh, doesn't get seven hours of sleep a night, now I might be able to get by with three or four hours, a few nights like that you might have to deal with, but if on a routine basis I'm getting less than seven hours of sleep, then my mental performance starts to dip. And, and, the, and the scientific studies show it's the same effect as being inebriated. So if you have a lack of sleep, it's the same as being drunk. And so in terms of the effect on your mental performance. So I uh, started building my schedule by making sure that I got seven hours of sleep so that when I had to make decisions about policy or strategy or life and death, that I was at my peak mental performance because that's what my nation needed me to do. So seven hours of sleep, three meals a day, and two hours a day, I would work out and talk to my wife. And uh, extremely important. And so this uh, spiritual, emotional, Physical, mental balance, extremely important. You can do all that in about 10 hours a day. That leaves you 14 hours a day to do your job, and that's plenty of time. And, then, and, and so what I would say is, two, three, seven, get enough sleep is one of the key things as you go into these tough jobs that you're going to face. So um, I, I'd wrap this up by saying our country, your country, is depending on you. So each of you are going to go off uh, either return to your respective field or join our larger national security community in some uh, role that's important. We are counting on you to be at your peak mental performance. IWP has made that investment, given you the intellectual tools. You need to take those and apply them. Uh, I, I uh, suggest you know, achieving that unity of effort, bringing to bear your best effort is really what we need from you. You are going to deal with problems that I couldn't anticipate right now that you'll have to deal with. 
and that you will see for the first time. And, and, and some of you in this room may will solve those problems, undoubtedly. And you'll apply those tools that you learned here. So again, thank you for your willingness to do that. Thank you for your willingness to step into the arena and get the job done, to improve yourselves so that you can now go and do what our, our nation needs you to do and what the, really the world needs you to do. I also want to say a special congratulations to everyone who supported you in this, because no one accomplishes uh, a degree program like this on their own. And so to all the family members, spouses, loved ones, friends, colleagues who are here, thank you for supporting all these graduates and, and this accomplishment that we're about to recognize. Uh, and by doing so, you also are contributing to our national security with your support of these uh, great people in the first few rows. So good luck. It's, uh, it's enormously uh, encouraging to me to see you, uh, to see you uh, get your diplomas. I'll have a chance to shake hands with each of you here. We need you uh, out, out in the arena. And uh, it is great to know that you're, uh, you're going to be getting back in there. Uh, I also, again, I want to say thanks to the Institute for World Politics Leadership, Dr. Lenchowski and Chairman Owens. Thank you so much uh, for honoring me and my family with us today and for this chance to dialogue with your, uh, with your great students. And, uh, and finally, may God bless each of you and may God bless our great country. Thank you.